Well, welcome to uh, another day in the Word of God as we go through uh, another psalm today. Looking forward to this. We're going to look at Psalm 9. And uh, it's a wonderful psalm. And uh, before I get into that, just a reminder to uh, please subscribe to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards, my Facebook page, Anthony P. Richards, my Instagram, AP Richards. Like, comment, share uh, on these videos, share them. Let's get them out and uh, have as many people enjoy them. And please like whatever uh, comments you have, please type them out, take the time to do it because it's just a little bit of encouragement to other people uh, of just things that maybe they didn't necessarily uh, connect the dots with or get out of it themselves. So I really encourage you to go ahead and do that. Uh, this is a really interesting psalm. It's a psalm, uh, again, you know, David had a lot of self-awareness. I talk about that a lot, <clears throat> pardon me. And uh, David would often take himself on a journey in each of the psalms. And, uh, and, and he highlights the point in this particular psalm that... Uh, Man can often have a short memory, but God never forgets. God's kind of like the elephant. There you go. How's that? Let's talk about the elephant in the room. God who never forgets. Uh, and the title of this psalm reads, To the Chief Musician, uh, To the Tune of Death of the Son. <laughs> That's a great, great name, isn't it? Uh, a Psalm of David. So the title indicates for us that David wrote this psalm, uh, to God himself, chief musician, usually where you see capital C, capital M, chief musician, that's David or the psalmist writing this psalm to God. It's a song of praise to God. And it, it's, it was obviously to a popularly known uh, popularly <laughs> known tune in the day. In Hebrew, it was called Mathlaben, and uh, it, was, it was called Death of the Son. In this psalm, David really celebrates the... the what kind of help and goodness God is uh, to us when we forget, but also that God has a very large vision for the nations of the world, not just for people. Uh, now, we don't know when David wrote this. Maybe he wrote this remembering the victory over Goliath uh, and, and he was all of a sudden having a, a memory moment. Oh, that's right. Yeah, God helped me do that all those years ago. Uh, and it had probably been many years since David had triumphed over Goliath. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, in the uh, uh, Hebrew Bible, <clears throat> pardon me, and in the English Bibles uh, that you would read, Psalm 9 and 10 are separate Psalms. In the Vulgate, the Septuagint, and in the uh, Roman Catholic Bible, Psalm 9 and uh, 10 are combined into one poem. Um there's various reasons for that. I won't go into it. It doesn't really make any difference. They're all in there. The whole content is in there. So let's get in and start reading Psalm 9, verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before I go any further, do you, do you praise God on an I will or I'll try? Is your praise of God based on a, well, I'll try and worship you? Or is your praise of God, I will worship you? I will remember what Jesus did for me on the cross. I will remember and I will praise God for sending his only son. I think David declares, I will. Same person that wrote, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, said, I will praise you, O Lord, with my whole heart, not just a little bit, not just my whole heart. I will tell of all your marvelous works. David recognized that God was worthy of praise with his whole heart. And that basically his entire being should be directed 
towards God in affection. Uh, Spurgeon said, half heart is no heart. And by the way, I'm going to use a lot of Spurgeon quotes today because they're just, they're gold and I can't leave them out. Uh, James Boyce, we do not praise God with our lips very much, if at all. And when we do, if we do, we praise him half-heartedly. It is more often true that Christians complain of how God has been treating and treating them, carrying on excessively about their personal needs or desires or gossip. And I think the point he's making there is what do we use our lips for? Complaining to God or praising God? David says, I'm going to tell of all your marvelous works. David described an important and often neglected way to praise God. We forget about this. Tell God about his marvelous works and your observation of them. Because simply remembering and telling the great things that God has done is a wonderful way to praise him. Verse 2, I will be glad and rejoice in you. Uh, oh, I think of all the songs that I sang as a young man with these, these words. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Uh, when my enemies turn back. Oh, that's the start of verse 3. Let me get on to verse 2. Uh, I will be glad and rejoice in you. David uh, here describes a second way to praise God. So the first way is to remember what God has done. Second way is to simply find uh, and express gladness and joy in God himself. Uh, that's simply choosing to rest in and celebrate the goodness, greatness, and kindness of God. I will sing to your name, O Most High. Here's David's third way of praising God uh, with his whole heart, by singing praise to the name of God. And the idea here is, is to honor and celebrate the character and the nature of God, recognizing him as who? Most High. Verse 3. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. Uh, in the first two verses of this psalm, David described the general reasons for praising God. And those reasons are always valid. No matter what circumstances we're going through, you can always nail those three. And now he recounted uh, a reason that's more specific to his own present circumstances that he finds himself in. He praised God for the way that the Most High had helped him defeat his enemies in the past. Verse 4, For you have maintained my right and my cause. You sat on the throne judging in righteousness. David saw God move against his enemies. How? By defending him on the principle of right and wrong in his conflict, which shows us that the God of David, which is the God of the Bible, is not dispassionate regarding right and wrong among men and women. Uh, he's not always neutral in human conflict. It's entirely true that men may think that God is on their side when he actually is not. Uh, and that it may be God who is against both parties in a dispute. Uh, nevertheless, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David was able to say, for you have maintained my right and my cause. David Guzik says this, understanding this should not make us automatically claim that God is on our side in our battles or disputes. It should rather make us endeavor to be on God's side by rigorously conforming ourselves to his word. Verse five, you have rebuked the nations, you have destroyed the wicked, you have blotted out their name forever and ever. David saw God in action among the nations, righteously judging the wicked. And by implication, we can see that David justified and defended the righteous, which is, 
for his own intents and purposes, him in this present situation. Now, the past tense of verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 are interesting because they are what we call prophetic perfects, uh, which is a feature of the Old Testament, which is where the writer of the, the words would describe coming events as if they have already happened because they were so certain that those words would be fulfilled and their vision was very clear about what God was going to do and they were proven correct through the history of time. Verse 6. O enemy, destructions are finished forever and you have destroyed cities. Even their memory has perished. Uh, Here David shifts his focus a little bit from speaking now, he was speaking directly to the Lord. And now he's addressing his enemies and the enemies of the Lord and the enemies that the Lord had defeated. And David assures them that their evil work of destruction is going to end in futility. Can't, can't keep going on, you can't win. Verse 7. But the Lord shall endure forever. He has prepared his throne for judgment. We could have expected David to set himself in contrast to the wicked, but he... He's wise enough and humble enough by by this time in his life to know that God would judge the wicked more for being God's own enemies instead of whether they were David's enemies. Verse 8. He shall judge the world in righteousness and he shall administer judgment for the peoples in uprightness. David looked forward to the eventual and ultimate rule of God over all the nations, which would be the perfect expression of God's righteous judgment. G. Campbell Morgan, this psalm is a great pattern of praise on a far too much neglected level in our day. We praise God much for his mercy, and that is right. But it is a good thing to recognize his righteous rule and to praise him for that. You know, what's interesting is a thousand years after David wrote these words, the Apostle Paul quoted them exactly uh, in uh, one of his most famous messages. He preached it in a place called Mars Hill, uh, which is in Athens. And you can read it in Acts 17. And it was during Paul's second missionary journey. And he quotes this passage of scripture from David, uh, which I think is an amazing revelation to us of how the, 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 the life of scripture keeps going and keeps going and keeps going and it's still applicable to us today. Verse 9. The Lord also will be a refuge for the oppressed, a refuge in times of trouble. David here is saying how grateful he is that God does more than just judge the wicked. He's a refuge and a support for those who are oppressed by the wicked. Um, Particularly, and and the tense of the uh, Hebrew word used here is particularly when there seems no hope of deliverance. In other words, when you're in a position where you feel like there's no hope of you getting out of the situation, God is a refuge and a support for you, no matter where your attacks are coming from. That's a great hope, and I hope that encourages many of you today. Verse 10, and those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Uh, David understood that the help of God wasn't given just because God favoured some and opposed others. It was because his people are in relationship with him. They know your name. They have faith in him, which they put their trust in you. And they seek him who seek you. All those words are in this passage. So it, it is 
a very difficult trial for a child of God, whether that be you or me, to feel forsaken by God. And there are particular times when we're likely to feel that God has just left us and forsaken, even though we know he's told us he wouldn't. Uh, And here's when those times usually are. We've sinned and run away from him. He didn't move, we did. When we face great trouble and we're like, I just don't know if God can help me. Uh, When we have a massive task in front of us to do and we're like, I just don't know, and we automatically default to whether we can do it or not. Forget about whether we need to do it in Jesus' strength or not. And then fourthly, when we feel our prayers are unanswered, that, that's when we feel God's forsaken us. In other words, we prayed something, hear nothing, and we're like, well, I guess he's left me. But we know that our prayers are something that will always go answered. Um, and it could be for different reasons. <laughs> um, maybe it's the answer is not what we want. And we're saying, well, God hasn't answered my prayer. Well, he's answered it. He just didn't tell you what you wanted to hear. Uh, Maybe he's been silent when you asked for something in prayer. Well, that's because God's got nothing new to tell you. So go back to what he last told you and keep on that path. Uh, no, No different than Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He never got an answer to his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. He said, if this cup can be taken from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. God didn't go, yep, that's my will. That's my will. And Jesus went, okay, thumbs up, I'll go to the cross. No, he heard nothing. Why? Because God had already sent him on that trajectory. And so unanswered prayers put us in the same boat as Jesus. Had God forsaken Jesus? No. But Jesus even himself went through the feeling of being forsaken by God when he took on the sin of the world. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus knows what it's like to, to feel the human condition of being forsaken by our Father. Why? Because he took on your and my sin your sin and my sin, and that, that's what disconnected him from the Father, which is what caused him to have, to have to conquer death through the power of the Holy Spirit and allow that reconciliation between you and I and God. In the, in the course of all that, he knows what it's like to feel the human condition of being forsaken by God. And, and so that is why we can find ref, refuge in seeking God. How do we do it? Just knowing his name. It sounds so simple that it's like there's got to be more to it than that. That, that, that. There can't just be, you know, it can't just be those who know your name will put their trust in you. That, that's, we're like, there's got to be more to it, but there isn't. David's very simplistic revelation, verse 11. Sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare his deeds among the people. David strongly encourages, actually challenges people to do what he has already done in this psalm, which was to praise the Lord and to declare what God has done, declare his deeds among the people. Uh, Spurgeon said this, singing and preaching as means of glorifying God are here joined together. And it is remarkable that connected with all the revivals of gospel ministry, there has been a sudden outburst of the spirit of song. Luther's psalms and hymns were in all men's mouths. And in the modern revival under Wesley and Whitfield, the strains of Charles Wesley are in their mouth. Which is interesting, because he's talking about current revivals of 120, 150 years ago. Uh, Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and many others were the outgrowth of restored piety. Spurgeon said that. See, David here communicated something known 
among those who praise God, which is this. When you praise God, it's natural for you to draw others into similar praise. That's why there is an amazing X factor to communal worship in church. Because somebody can go to church and they've had a terrible week, terrible day. They don't want to praise God. They don't even know how to have the strength to do it. And then they watch you. They're watching you praise God with fervency. Uh, they're watching you praise God with just a, a, a determination. And, and it lifts their spirit. And then they can start to worship too. This is exactly the point that David is making. That's why it's so hard to worship God uh, when you are constantly separated from the body of Christ. Verse 12. There we go. Um, when he avenges blood, he remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the humble. David called others to praise God for the same reasons that David had praised him earlier in this psalm, which is because God is, he's basically a partisan on behalf of those who are the oppressed and who are humble. And God avenges their blood because he's on your side. Numbers 35 verses 33 to 34 tells us that the blood of unavenged murders pollutes the earth. And the blood of Abel spoke to God, Genesis 4.10. The blood of Nabal in 2 Kings 9.26. Uh, God has promised to avenge blood and remember the murdered, which as a society we, sh we, we should also remember uh, for you know, the many millions who have been murdered uh, out of the womb and in the womb. See, it reminds us that God will remember and avenge the blood of his persecuted people. He will. I don't know how he's going to do it, but he'll do it. Verse 13. <laughs> and I don't want to be on the wrong side. I want to be on the part of, I want to be party on the party that he's partisan to. And I don't mean political party. I mean on the side of God's truth. Verse 13. Have mercy on me, O Lord. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. You lift me up from the gates of death. David had just considered that God remembered, all of a sudden he goes, oh, God remembers the cry of the humble. So now David wanted God to remember him in his season of trouble. Consider my trouble from those who hate me. Um, this, is, uh, this is really interesting um, because he says, you who lift me up from the gates of death. Uh, Spurgeon said this, the contrast between the gates of death and the gates of the new Jerusalem is very striking. Let our songs be excited to the highest and most rapturous pitch by the double consideration of whence we are taken. You've got to think about that and apply it. Verse 14. That I may tell of all your praise in the gates of the daughter of Zion. I will rejoice in your salvation. David wanted God to rescue him so that he could give God all the more praise and all the more passionately to rejoice in God's salvation. And again, the, the idea here is David has much more than his own personal benefit and his own well-being in mind when he's praying this prayer. Even his deliverance is a way for God to bring more glory to himself. David didn't see his rescue as the final goal. The goal was always about giving greater glory to God. That's why he says, I will rejoice in your salvation, uh, which is a good thing. To, you know, David had that 
surety of salvation, being saved through a relationship with God. And it's a good thing, Spurgeon says, it's a good thing for the melancholy to become a Christian. It is an unfortunate thing for the Christian to become melancholy. If there is any man in the world that has a right to have a bright, clear face and a flashing eye, it is the man whose sins are forgiven him and who is saved with God's salvation. Yeah, that's a bit of a mic drop and, and, and kind of a little bit of a kick for us all at the same time. Verse 15. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they made. In the net which they hid, their own foot is caught. David understood the triumph of God to be so complete that his enemies are ensnared in the same trap that they actually set for others. So even the best plans and efforts of those who oppose God end up serving God's purpose. And you can see this pattern all through scripture. It's demonstrated again and again. Esau and Isaac, they plotted against the purposes of God. They ended up serving the purposes of God. Joseph's brothers, uh, they fight against the plan of God only to help God further his plan. Uh, Haman built a, gallow, a gallows uh, for Mordecai the Jew to be hung on, only be, to be hung on those same gallows himself. Judas betrayed Jesus and then became a fulfillment of God's prophecy. Now, this of course never justifies the evil that men do. Uh, and Adam Clark talks about this. There is nothing that a wicked man does that is actually not against his own interests. He is continually doing harm to himself. And he takes more pains to destroy his soul than the righteous man does to get his saved soul unto eternal life. This is a weighty truth. And the psalmist adds, Selah, meditate on this, mark it well. Verse 16, the Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands meditation and that's the word higeon that hebrew word so he says meditate sila pause very rare combination of words found throughout all the psalms and in the bible where we are told to meditate think about it dwell on it pause stop reflect on everything that we've just read so it's obviously very important Verse uh, 16 reminds us that the greatness of God is demonstrated by the way that he can both use the plans and the efforts of the ungodly while also bringing righteous judgment upon them. So they never escape, but God can use what they intended for evil. He can use it for good. It's the New Testament uh, concept of Romans 8, 28, for we know that all things work together for good to them who are the call according to his purpose. Um, <coughs> pardon me. All things work together for good. Not all things are good, but God can use all things and work them together for good. We see that. David knew that. Jesus saw it. We know it. Verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell and all the nations that forget God. Um, here, as David approaches the conclusion of this psalm, he considered the end of the wicked, what would happen to them, their ultimate destruction in hell. And in the patterns of uh, Hebrew poetry, the phrase, and all the nations that forget God, can be considered uh, another way of describing the wicked mentioned in the previous line. Uh, 
but it's a useful repetition because it reminds us of the inherently great sin of forgetting God. Forgetting God is a sin. Uh, David Guzik says this, What does the sinner forget about God? Man forgets the infinite majesty and glory of God. They forget the mercies of God, forget the laws of God, forget the presence of God, forget the justice of God. Why does the sinner forget God? Man forgets God because the thought of God makes man afraid. Man forgets God because the thought of God doesn't entertain him enough. Man forgets God because the thought of God makes it hard to carry on in sin. Spurgeon said, The forgetters of God are far more numerous than the profane or the profligate. And according to the very forceful expression of the Hebrew, the nethermost hell will be the place into which all of them shall be hurled headlong. Forgetfulness seems a small sin, but it brings eternal wrath upon the man who lives and dies in it. That's very sobering, isn't it? But it's also another reason to praise God. I will praise you, O Lord, because I know all these things. I'm not going to forget you. Verse 18, For the needy shall not always be forgotten. The expectation of the poor shall not perish forever. David expresses wonderful contrast here, that the wicked try to forget God, yet the needy and the poor... And, and here describing the godly who are oppressed by God's enemies, they are not forgotten. And shall not always be forgotten reminds us that from the perception of the needy and the poor, they do feel for a time that they've been forgotten. But the good God promises that they will not always feel this way and that their expectation will not forever be disappointed. And, and there, are, there are a few more painful things than feeling forgotten and feeling disappointed. Uh, to, when you're in that pain and that painful position, God makes these wonderful promises to us that they will not always be forgotten and their expectation will not perish. So, so let me just remind you of a few things. Uh, you will not always be forgotten in the Word of God, so keep reading it. You will not always be forgotten at the Lord's table, so keep receiving you will not always be forgotten in your service, so keep serving. You expected to have peace in Jesus, and in him you will have it. You expected to triumph over sin, in him you will triumph. You expected to get out of trouble, in him you will be delivered. You expected to grow strong in faith, in him you will be strengthened. You expected to have spiritual joys and experiences, and in him you will have them. Adam Clark it says, the needy and the poor whose expectation is from God are never forgotten, though sometimes their deliverance is delayed for the greater confusion of their enemies, the greater manifestation of God's mercy and the greater benefit to themselves. You, you and I can't see it. We're in the middle of it. God always works all things together for good. Verse 19, arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged in your sight. Previously in the psalm, David expresses a firm confidence in God's judgment of the wicked and his vindication of the righteous. But David did not allow this expectation to make him passive or fatalistic in regard to the outworking of God's plan. Instead, he boldly prays, uh, Arise, O Lord, and do not let man prevail. 
Verse 20, put them in fear, O Lord, that the nations may know themselves to be but men. David expresses confidence in God's judgment of the wicked, but it didn't leave, lead David to hatred of, of mankind or anybody who didn't think like he did. It, it didn't lead him to a place of unhealthy joy in God's judgment on the wicked. His real hope was that the display of God's judgment would actually teach the nations their proper place before God, which is that you're just a man and he's God. And, and that, this comes from a place of humility. And as David has already talked about it in the psalm, the humble are remembered before God. Verse 12, this was a prayer for God to reach the nations through the display of his judgment. So what do we observe? What do we observe? Uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, we, what I observe. You're not forgotten. You, you watching this today, you're not forgotten. Uh, I want to pray for you if you feel forgotten. I, I want to pray that you would remember all the mercies and the promises of God. They may not arrive in the timing that you would like them to, but I can tell you God has not forgotten you and he's with you in your circumstance. Heavenly Father, be with every single person who's watching this today. Bless them, encourage them, lift them up. And I pray, Lord, as they, as they watch this, they would remember that, God, you've never forgotten them. You never will. It's your promise I'll never leave you and forsake you. And so, God, I pray, Lord, that we, we know we can always look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that the man who has gone through every pain that we go through, he understands our emotion, our hurt, our our distancing from you at certain times, and yet he always lived a life of nevertheless, I will praise your name. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Let us be more like Jesus every single day, I pray. Amen.